Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome back to New Books in Political Science. I'm Susan Lee Bell, and today I'm joined by Sarah Hughes, Assistant Professor in the School for Environment and Sustainability at the University of Michigan. She's here to discuss her terrific new book, Repowering Cities, Governing Climate Change Mitigation in New York, Los Angeles, and Toronto, published by Cornell University Press, 2019. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me. So your book looks at the way cities have actually approached climate change mitigation, uh, as opposed to international organizations, national um, uh, leaders. And you argue that the way that cities have approached this is to have a common set of governing strategies rather than any particular city characteristic or policy agenda. And you locate the sort of capacities in their ability to build institutions, coalitions, and capacities. And so as you see it, the foundation of any effort to kind of change cities uh, so that they could deal with something like climate change is, is, is something not particular to the, the, the characteristics, but, but something that we can identify and study. And you've got an incredible set of cases that, um, I cannot wait to talk to you about. But before we do that, tell me a little bit about how you came to write this book and how it fits into your wider scholarship. Sure. Um, so the way I came to write this book was I'd been um, working for a while, both as a, a doctoral student and, and as a postdoc fellow on issues related to cities and climate change. And there, this was... Um, around 2012, 2013. And there was a lot of excitement about the fact that cities were were stepping in and developing really ambitious climate change goals for themselves in the absence of federal and international leadership. So um, yeah, there's just a lot of excitement that this was happening. More and more cities were making these pledges. There were emerging uh, global networks of cities that were exciting to watch. Um, and it really was injecting, I think, a sense of hope into a lot of the climate change debate. Um, and I was working with um, colleagues like Patty romero Lankow uh, at the National Center for Atmospheric Research, folks at the... Um, uh, EPA, Office of Research and Development, on how we could, sort of what cities were doing and, and what we should take from it. And um, what what I noticed was that we were starting to know a fair bit about uh, why cities were doing this. I think that was the question a lot of us started with was, wow, this is a surprise. We wouldn't expect cities to uh, take this on, to, to take it upon themselves to address this 
kind of large collective action problem. Why is that so? And there were a lot of really great studies coming out um, showing why cities were doing this and also um, doing an analysis of what cities were committing to, what they had in their plans, um, and this kind of a thing. But we hadn't really yet gotten to the point of asking questions about implementation or what it takes to go from setting a really ambitious target like uh, you know, we as a city would like to reduce our emissions by 30%, 50%, 80%. What does it look like to go from that, from setting that target to really achieving those goals, to, to experiencing or realizing those emissions reductions? Um, and so I decided that that was where I was going to put my my own effort for the next um, turned out to be five years or so. <laughs> um, but uh, but that that was that was where it came from. And, and your training, how, where, where did you come out of and how much science background did you have before digging into this? Sure. So I had a, I came at it with a, with a mixed interdisciplinary background. So um, I had some familiarity with um, some of the basic scientific principles from um from my undergraduate and master's degree training, but um, I did my PhD work really focused on urban policy and politics. At the time, I was focused on water uh, issues, water conservation, uh, water sustainability, Um, but I was coming at it from um, the perspective of someone who's interested in cities and someone who's interested in how cities work politically, how they, um, what kind of policies um, cities can and do adopt. Um, and I think that that was another gap I saw um, in the literature at the time is that a lot of the folks who were um, interested in this new role that cities were playing in climate policy were coming at it from a an international relations perspective, right? Like these city networks, cities engaged in global conversations or even some of the climate negotiations. What does this mean for global politics? Um, And these are really great questions, um, but I thought that um, there was more to be said about it from the perspective of cities. And what does this mean? What does this shift mean from from the local perspective? So... In your work, you're living and sort of breathing climate change and water politics, but not all of our listeners are focused on that as their political issues. So could you remind people of what is the problem facing the cities? Just give us a very brief understanding of what the levels of greenhouse gases mean for the cities. You know, why is this a problem? Um so we can, before we dig into what the cities are trying to do, we can understand what the problem is. Yes, that is a great question. And um, and I think this is what makes, to me, what makes some of the policy and governance questions so interesting is that um, the idea or the sort of broad umbrella of you know, the idea of reducing greenhouse gas emissions in cities, um, you, in order to understand what that looks like, you have to drill down into particular sectors of, of the city, different sources of emissions. So in most cities, um, emissions are primarily coming from energy, the, the sort of energy mix that the city relies upon, um, whether it's coal or hydro or nuclear, um, and what the carbon intensity of, of that mix looks like. Um, and then there's a chunk that's typically attributable to the built environment. So the energy demands of the city, how much energy the city's buildings are using um, to turn on the lights, you know, power the the air conditioning and this kind of a thing. Um, And then a third big chunk is typically coming from the transportation system. Um, So the way this gets calculated is different under different frameworks, but generally the idea is um, we're we're talking about emissions coming from um, personal vehicles, transit systems. Um, Sometimes we're talking about... um, 
airline and um, and shipping traffic. Uh, but those are the three. There's a smaller fourth bucket um, that usually gets calculated under waste. So the way that cities handle their waste um, generates emissions uh, to a greater or lesser extent. But those are the sort of big buckets of of emissions that cities uh, are are responsible for, um, and that when it comes time to moving from that target to you know, kind of on the ground strategies, those are the, those are the intervention points that they were talking about. So uh, when you were introducing things earlier, you were distinguishing between the whether cities would do this or how, and mm-hmm. your comparative study is really about the how, um, and you're using New York, LA, and Toronto as empirical cases for telling us about how it is each of these three city governments moved from making a commitment to actually mitigating uh, greenhouse gases. Can, can you start us off by telling us why these three cities and, um, and what they, well, let's just start with what are, why those three cities? Sure, sure. So a big part of what I was looking for in choosing cases were cities that had made commitments to reduce greenhouse gas emissions long enough ago that we could reasonably, um, expect to evaluate implementation. Um, So honestly, when I first came to the study, I had been thinking more about issues on on the adaptation side, how cities were changing to adapt to the the, uh, to a changing climate, to new different patterns of rainfall, heat events, and this kind of a thing. But that's so new that we can't really get our heads around what implementation looks like. But fortunately, um, cities have been acting to reduce emissions, do you know, work on the mitigation side for much longer. So, so these three cities had each made um, pretty formal, um, pretty detailed commitments to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions by a significant amount um, in the year 2007. Um, so this all started, the project all started around uh, 2000. 2014, 2015. So I, I felt that gave me enough room to work with in, um, in thinking about how these plans had been implemented and wanting to reasonably expect to see uh, results, you know, to see reductions in emissions um, that we could point to and, and measure as a, as a result of these plans being put into place. Um, so that was the that was the first level of uh, of selection. Um, I was interested in large cities, and and it that's also who's acting. Who who were the early actors? There aren't a lot of smaller cities that were early actors in the way that um, in that. The, in the way that these cities were, um, and so that 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 narrowed the field down itself pretty pretty significantly, um, and then fortunately, uh, these three cities had made these relatively similar commitments to reduce emissions, but came at the job of 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 achieving those emissions with very different. Uh, sets of powers, um, uh, emissions mixes, sort of mixes of where their emissions were coming from, and and in right like what what kind of powers they they could bring to bear um, in reducing those emissions. So, for example, uh, Los Angeles is always a very special case because it has its own municipally owned um, energy utility, um, which is unusual, especially for a city of its size. Um, so it gives it a lot of authority over its, over its energy system, but it has a pretty weak mayor system institutionally, where by contrast, New York City has a very strong mayor system institutionally. The mayor's position comes with a lot of power and authority, um, but it's part of a regional transportation and, and electricity network um, that gives it uh, somewhat more muted powers in making um, uh, its own independent decisions about about those sectors, and then we've got Toronto, which is in in in, in the Canadian system, which constitutionally allocates um, the least amount of authority to its local governments of the three. 
Just backing up a little bit, there's a literature that looks at cities as bastions of democracy, as places where we can work these things out in a kind of nitty gritty way, as, as sort of the perfect laboratories to do this kind of work. So before we go to your conclusions, where do you place yourself in the literature of cities and how optimistic do you remain after this study about the possibilities and potentials for these three, the, the kinds of big cities that you're taking, that you're looking at in your book? Uh, I mean, this is really the million dollar question. And, and honestly, that, that continuum or that, that literature is also a lot of what motivated me to take this on because um, I was starting to uh, sort of reel from the different takes on cities where just like you say, there's, there's this kind of um, uh, avalanche of books coming out talking about um, how cities were going to save us, you know, Benjamin Barber's if mayors ruled the world. Um, and, and it's a really compelling idea and it makes a lot of sense in a lot of ways. But, um, you know, I was also participating and pretty engaged in an urban politics community um, that was centrally focused on, um, you know, inadequate housing, uh, failure to address poverty um, in cities is pretty clear that, um, you know, our transit systems, our infrastructure is not being updated in, in the way that it should. So I felt like when you stopped and looked around at cities sometimes and, and, and sort of peeled the, the, the covers back a little bit, it didn't always feel like you were living in, you know, some kind of urban utopia or something. <laughs> um, and so I, I was really, um, struck by that contrast. And to me, the, the climate change, uh, that, that, that arena, the arena of climate change embodies that, um, dichotomy so well, because on the one hand, you, you have all this enthusiasm and leadership, um, coming around, you know, emerging around cities that taking on climate change. And that's so important. And, and the goals are clearly um, important and impressive. And at the same time, you've got a a lot of people very skeptical that, um, that these kinds of changes can take place locally. So I'm, I'm (laughs) repeating, I'm repeating what you said a bit, but, um, and, and this question then of where, sort of where the book lies is trying to, trying to take that tension up basically and say, okay, well, let's look at what happened then, right? We've got excitement. These are three cities that have generated a lot of excitement about what they're doing um, with climate change, but there are three cities that face a lot, a lot of problems. And, um, you know, I think a lot of people that, that live in those cities um, don't always feel so optimistic about what the city um, is able to deliver. Um, and so, so that's exactly kind of what I wanted to take up with this study is if, if, okay, let's, let's start, you know, looking at it in depth and and see. And honestly, I came, I came away from the project more optimistic than I went into it. Um, because there was on on the whole, I would say I felt differently about some of the different cities, I think. Um, but on the whole, there was more, um, concrete activity and policy change and investment uh, to point to than than I had expected, or that then the sort of pessimistic take would um, lead you to expect. And so I think um, going forward, then um, my take would be that uh, there's a lot would. Would be that there's a lot that cities are and can doing, and I think we can't discount that. Um, and just, I guess, spoiler alert, but <laughs> that um, you know they're not going to go all the way on their own either. I think the tone of the book um, really communicates that. I, I think that you have this very balanced view. You don't you don't present the city as uh, you know the perfect place but you have admiration for what they're doing it's a, it's a really balanced i thought 
you know, from my read, I'm not a specialist in your area. I, I really felt that tension as I was reading it and also felt that along the way you were providing very helpful guideposts for the reader to take them to this literature, to take them to the barber, to have them understand how cities have been held up and the potential for them. And the, you know, you make a really great case for the fact that this is important to think about cities, but then to also speak to the limitations. Um, before we go into the three-part framework of the book, you use two terms. One is wicked problems, and the other is uh, the iron law of resource mobilization. And so before I ask you to sort of describe the wider argument, would you mind just putting those two terms on the table for all of us? Sure, sure. And this idea this idea of wicked problems in particular, I know um, – not everyone loves this term or finds it particularly useful, but um, the reason I found it useful to at least engage with here was because I thought it really helps to capture just how um, new and complex and uncertain this job is, especially from the perspective of city governments, where you're suddenly confronted with this task of doing completely, you know, meeting completely new targets um, working in sectors in completely new ways, working with new partners. There's just so much that's new and uncertain and complex about it that I, I found it quite useful to think about it um, uh, from that perspective. And so, I mean, the idea of a wicked problem generally is, uh, to me, that's the that's the sort of shortcut definition is that it's highly, it's, it's, it's imbued with complexity and uncertainty. And there's not... Um, uh, necessarily a, a lot of consensus around what the right way or what the most effective way is moving forward. And I think that also speaks to this newness, right? We haven't been here before. There's not a lot to turn to, to look for uh, best practices or, or what's worked in other places, especially when we think about cities that started doing this work in 2007. Um, and so and then the reason I think it's particularly helpful in the urban context is because um, it then helps us understand what city governments have to do um, in, from a from a governance perspective. You know what what those moves look like um, in order to take things forward, um, and it ties in then to this idea of. Um, resource mobilization. And I, and I use this phrase from Clarence Stone's work, who's one of the, um, you know, of course, real heavy hitters in uh, the urban politics world. Um, and he has written since the 80s about this idea that um, because of the institutional limitations, political limitations of city governments, um, in most arenas, you know, not just in climate change, in most arenas, um, in order for them to achieve their goals, um, they have to mobilize others. They have to mobilize other resources, other actors, that that's almost their central job is to serve as that, as that mobilizer. Um, and that, um, you know, and, and as Stone has updated his own um, understanding of the the urban political economy, he's uh, held fast to this idea, this iron law of resource mobilization, um, and I found this also to be particularly helpful in in the context of climate mitigation because we know going into it that this isn't something city governments can do on their own. You know. For sure, we know that they're going to need partners, they're going to need um, outside resources. Um, And so this idea of um, that being the primary mode by which city governments activate and and move toward their goals, I found to be really helpful and ties it in with this larger um, literature on just how cities work generally. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. 
They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Well, let's start with a three-part framework before we move to the three cities and how they've approached these problems. So really quickly, just give us the, the three parts so that we can hear that as we work through the cities. Sure. Uh, so, so in the framework, uh, the idea is that it's a framework for how uh, we or I should go about um, evaluating um, that implementation process for um, urban climate policy. And the idea is that um, we should look at first the the policies and programs cities adopt um, for the purpose of reducing emissions, and that these policies and programs will, will necessarily be specific to the authorities that cities have and their particular mix of emissions. You know that they'll have they'll have to develop a, a set of policy tools fit to the context. Um, but then the second part, um, a second thing we can look at is what these governing strategies look like. So going back to this idea of resource mobilization, um, what are the what are the strategies cities govern city governments use to do that mobilization and to move governance forward. Um, and I argue that those are shared because of the shared, uh, broadly shared political economic context, institutional context of cities, you know, going back to Stone's idea of the these kind of inherent limitations, um, that there would be shared strategies that are useful for cities um, to do that resource mobilization. And then third, of course, we need to think about, um, uh, look at the outcomes, look at what's happened, um, what kind of impacts we can point to um, as a result of this work. So in chapter three, after you've presented the frameworks, you provide this incredibly helpful overview of the challenges and capacities of each city. Can, can you give us a brief version of, the, you've started that earlier, but what are these three cities like? How are they different? What are the challenges and what kind of institutions and other resources do they already have in place? Sure. Um, so they have some really, yeah, just fascinating similarities and differences um, in that sense. And so in, in New York City, um, this was a city that was, um, had some um, kind of piecemeal uh, efforts in the past to address climate change, to to build in um, sustainability uh, into the city goals. The council had been pushing this um, for for a bit before 2007, um, but it has this really powerful mayoral position, and it really needed a mayor who was on board. And it turned out that Bloomberg was that mayor um, for a variety of reasons. He was convinced by advisors and others um, that sustainability and climate change were the big issues um, that the city needed to address. And so he assembled a really talented team, um, put out a really ambitious plan. And they really, uh, I mean, that plan, uh, the one NYC plan in 2007, I mean, it was really a sort of flagship uh, document, a flagship plan in this field. Um, and, and then, like I said, you know, they, they had a lot of really great executive leadership, very ambitious and um, well-developed plan, um, but have uh, some challenges in the sense that, uh, like I said, they don't have, you know, they're working in regional transportation and electricity networks. Um, they had a fairly contentious relationship with state government at the time. Um, and their their emissions mix, because they have such a great public transit system, a lot of their emissions are coming from the from buildings. Um, something close to 80% of their greenhouse gas emissions are from building energy use. So on the one hand, you know, this provides a really compelling case and a sort of clear um, uh 
you know, kind of call to action here. Um, but it's a really tough uh, nut to crack is, uh, you know, making big inroads on um, existing buildings through retrofits. Um, so let me, let me interrupt you for just a second. Since we're in real time and Bloomberg just ran for the mm-hmm. Democratic nomination, and just as a footnote, as you watched Bloomberg run after having studied so carefully his work on climate change, do you have any insights or surprises about about how he ran, the extent to which it was about climate change or not about climate change? Mm. Yeah, it, I mean, it was fascinating to watch. And um, I I was definitely surprised at um, how, how much he didn't mention his experience with climate change. So that was my sense, especially in the first um, Democratic primary debate. Um, I would have thought, yeah, I'm biased, but I would have thought that would have been something he could really come out and made an impact with because, um, I mean, he made such a big impact in New York City. He was uh, the UN uh, envoy for climate change for a time. He led the C40 um, Cities Climate Network. Um, he's got he's got a strong record on climate change at this point, um, and he I didn't see him uh, leveraging it. Um, I think he was, uh, I, I got the sense he was reeling a little bit in the first debate after Elizabeth Warren um, uh, gave him <laughs> her, her two cents. Um, but, but I was, I was surprised about that. But, and at the same time, um, you know, people, there, there are, there are other issues, right. And um, even though he, he has a strong climate record, you know, his, his, his broader record was, was kind of up, on trial as well, I guess. No, that's helpful. Sorry, I just I derailed you about the other cities. Okay, so that's New York. Um, what about Los Angeles or Toronto? Yeah, yeah, no problem. Bloomberg's a fascinating character. There's no doubt. Um, I have to agree with you. As I read the book, I thought I'm originally from New York, but I wasn't in New York when Bloomberg was mayor, and it really did surprise me that Bloomberg didn't make more of this success and of this uh, position because it would have combined a sort of the, it would have combined a progressive issue combating climate change with his more conservative background on other issues. So I, anyway, anyway, I was just well, and that's how Reading he did your book. It was a real reminder of all the things he had done. Yeah, yeah, no, that's right, and and that was how he did it in New York too. I mean, he worked through the business community. I mean, he had the business sector on board with his goals, and and I mean, he's really effective. So, I'm not sure, um, but uh, but then it, so yeah, in the in the case of Los Angeles, um, I mean, this is a city that also had. Um, a fairly environmentally friendly uh, political um, context or kind of setup going into it. Um, and Villaraigosa, who was mayor at the time, uh, capitalized on that, built a nice coalition around um, his Green LA plan, and uh, really was also listening to a broad set of advisors who was telling him, this is, this is what we need to do. This is um, a new important direction for the city. Um, and and it didn't it didn't quite get the same kind of legs under it as a plan as a um, as a kind of institutionalized feature of his administration. It didn't it didn't get the same kind of legs in it that it did in, as it did in New York City. Um, I think partly it was um, because it is a weaker mayoral position. It required a lot more from city council, and he had a pretty tough relationship uh, with city council. And so this too, I mean. And this was something I really uh, try to do in the book is, you know, that climate change is no different than any other <laughs> policy issue for cities, right? It's, it's it's shaped by by city politics, you know, it's shaped by the relationship between the mayor and the city council. Um, and I think especially those of us who really spend a lot of time in the environmental field and environmental spaces, I think it can be easy to, to lose sight of that. Um, but then, like I said, Los Angeles also has this, uh, its own utility. And so that has just been a huge, um, advantage for the city. It's also, of course, um, in California, one of the most progressive states on climate change. It's setting targets for cities. It's setting targets for utilities. So it has a lot to work with, um, in that sense. Um, in Toronto, 
um, had a really progressive mayor, David Miller, at the time. Same same kind of story. Um, there was just a lot of uh, progressive momentum in the city around environmental issues, around climate change. Um, they had finally gotten a progressive mayor into office um, and, and had this plan come out setting these targets. And I think, it, you know, they had... Um, this strong champion in David Miller at the time, but he was followed uh, fairly quickly by um, by Rob Ford, who really had little to no interest in continuing uh, these programs. Where Toronto got lucky, um, uh, some, in some ways, like Los Angeles, at the, at the time, the province of Ontario was making really... Um, really ambitious uh, inroads on, on reducing coal-fired power plants, where the province is now completely free of coal-fired power plants. Um, and so the city, be, you know, because they're on that network, they benefit from that too. So so they had um, a plan that uh, at this point and for a long time has largely been uh, developed, implemented, innovated upon by really, really dedicated city staff really smart, really um, just fully committed uh, city staff have really been carrying this. One of the assumptions in political science is often that there's a problem or there's a difference, not a problem, but there's a real difference in delivering policy on the environment because it isn't something that necessarily can be felt by the voters who exist right now. There aren't always tangibles that can either be seen um, or experienced. And so that it actually is a very, very different challenge for a leader who is elected to take it on because it doesn't have that kind of immediate deliverable. Did you find that or do you find voters responding to climate change the same way that they would respond to building parks or improving roads? Um, it's, you know, it's a, I think it's a little bit of both. I think what's, I think what's special about doing this, uh, at the city level or in the urban context is that a lot of measures that, um, that can be taken locally to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, um, have fairly tangible outcomes. So it is things like, um, building energy retrofits, um, that affect, you know, your energy bills, but also require that you, uh, pay for and live through um, a retrofit uh, of your home or your office or whatever it is, um, or you start getting into transportation politics, right? Building uh, new infrastructure, uh, changing the way people get to work. Um, so I think um, that's something that's a little bit special about climate action at the local level is that it almost by necessity does have that more tangible kind of local landing um, than. Um, maybe policy, maybe, you know, um, renewable portfolio standards at the state level that you might not actually see. There's maybe a note on your energy bill, um, you know, where in cities, they're probably going to be thinking about rooftop solar, right? That's going to be more visible and this kind of a thing. Um, And so I think on the one hand, you get uh, residents who are engaging with the city's climate plan, right? When they sort of develop a plan for climate change. And that often is a popular um, move. Um, At least the cities that are doing it are typically doing it because their residents want it, right? That it's like, we're, we're a climate leader. We're going to act on climate change. We have a climate plan. Um, and that's connecting with um, some kind of liberal or environmentally aware voting base. But then what happens is um, then to reach those goals, like I was saying, you have to start getting into really specific um, sectors, really specific infrastructures, and then it becomes different politics, I think, you know, when you start saying, okay, how are we going to expand our bus network, or how are we going to start building, who's going to pay for new light rail? Um, that's a different uh, politics. Or, or how are we going to encourage density? I mean, this is the big one right now, right? A lot of cities, um, 
a tool, an important tool they have in their toolbox is to Im- increase density. It helps with transit. Um, it can help with efficiencies and this kind of a thing, um, you know, improves mobility. Um, but density, increasing density is really unpopular uh, policy. So one of the points that you make in the book is that the context um the sources of power, as you've described it now, the even where people get their energy are are pretty unique among these three cities. Um, I'm wondering what the wider lessons uh, to draw from this comparative study are for smaller cities. And I'm also wondering, I know you don't have the data, so I'm asking you to guess, but what about the cities in the Midwest, the South, the West, places like Houston, um, would what you are uh, observing in these three cities apply to the smaller cities and to the larger cities of the Midwest and the South and West? Mm-hmm. So I think that um, the the broader applicability and lessons to be learned at a minimum can come from these governing strategies um, so that it might not be that every city has uh, the the power to completely redo their building energy code the way that New York City did. That's a pretty special power that the city has. But I think these governing strategies, building institutions and building capacity and building coalitions, I think those are going to be common in, in common commonly and uh, common and effective strategies in almost any city. Um, And I think sometimes, um, those can be that can be an even more important lesson to be transferred between cities, right? So uh, you'll see a lot of kind of how tos documents or kind of learning documents um, that'll be focused on. Well, we um, we put in new bike lanes, and these are our bike lanes, or we put in uh, new solar panels, and it it might be that um, a city, a small city in the Midwest, a, a, a Sun Belt city, or something like this, maybe they they get to the point where they say, okay, you know, we get it, uh, we we see the need to do something about climate change, we don't know where to start. Um, it might be more helpful to think about um, uh, how other cities have gone about doing that resource mobilization, right? Doing that, um, you know, doing that forward motion rather than the very specific policy tools that they used. Um, So it might be, I think, helpful for cities to understand how it was that um, New York City got um, their climate plans really institutionalized within city government by passing that kind of legislation or what kind of coalition building efforts um, help Toronto pass, uh, you know, energy loan programs under a really conservative mayor um, and this kind of a thing. So I think that getting started on the governance side um, can be perhaps the most translatable uh, lessons from these cases. Um, the book uses a combination of interviews, government reports, um, all sorts of archival documents, newspaper articles. I'm wondering if there were particular interviews or particular finds that surprised you. You know, do you have some sort of juicy mm. research story to make the politics nerds in our audience jump? <laughs> um, that's a great question. Um so one one that stands out to me the, the first thing that's coming to mind was an interview I did in um in New York with a woman who worked um in the legislative office so um I'm going to forget now the exact name of the office but it's essentially the office that um handles legislation and helps it move through um city council and talking with her um, was one of the conversations that made me really hopeful and optimistic, actually. She talked about how, um, you know, they had passed more than 100 pieces of legislation through city council designed to improve energy efficiency, uh, create new rules, uh, you know, for, for the building code, as I mentioned. They all passed unanimously through city council. I mean, she was just, she was, she was um, just, over 
flowing with joy and, <laughs> um, yeah. at, uh, with her with her job and this experience. And she, you know, her, hearing her talk about, she's saying, you know, I've never seen this before. It's so collaborative. We're all doing it, and we're making a difference. Um, and uh, it, and it it was simultaneously, I I found it a lot of fun because it's. Um, it's that it's the sort of sausage making side, you know, it wasn't a counselor. It was someone who's doing the unglamorous work of, you know, the sort of nuts and bolts of getting these bills through loving her job. Um, and, and, and really facilitating, um, cutting edge policy, uh, coming through this council. So I don't know if that's particularly juicy, but, um, but it was a lot of fun at the time and was a different perspective on, um, some of the more cynical takes sometimes of that backroom sausage making (laughs) work. Sure. And also look, studying the environment, especially climate change can be grim. That's right. And I think that many researchers are faced with the problem, and this is not um, exclusive, obviously, to people who study climate change, people who study genocide, that you're you're looking at something where the trajectory is not optimistic. And so I can imagine that sitting with somebody who is making things happen at that level and who expresses optimism would be would be incredibly encouraging. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. Um, you you sort of want to have something to point to, um, like you said, when you do get a sort of close up look at how much is not happening and how tough it is, and you know everybody fighting tooth and nail along the way. Um, but uh, yeah, having something like that to point to is um, can be a pretty big deal. So you and I are recording this um, on a day when most of uh, the United States is engaged in thinking about COVID-19 and what they can do, can't do. And a lot of mayors today, um, especially in these densely populated large cities, are struggling with what to do. I'm wondering, again, this is not your, I know this is not your case study, but you looked very carefully at these three cities knowing what you know about them and their um, capacities and institutions, uh, what are, what do you think are the challenges for the three of them as they face this very, very different city problem? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, and on, on, on one level um, there's this fundamental tension, right? Where, um, the thing that we love about cities and the thing that makes cities thrive is connection and, um, that proximity. Um, and that's exactly what we're trying to minimize right now, right in the midst, in the midst of this outbreak. And so it must be really challenging for, uh, leaders who are used to and focused on promoting that, that, um, and, and managing, I guess, in, to an extent too, that proximity um, to then suddenly be trying to find ways to keep people away from each other and um, and justify that. And of course, it is justified, but um, you know, helping people understand why that's why that's necessary. Um, and I think too, this is um, you know my take anyway is that this is another example where. Um, federal government response has been has been a bit slow and has been a bit lacking, um, and this time it's happening. In this case, it's happening very quickly. But it is another example where uh, city leaders are having to engage in new ways, in new policy areas, and make new kinds of uh, decisions and provide new kinds of leadership. So, um, you know, who knows, maybe um, engaging with these kinds of issues, whether it's climate change, immigration, um, having that um, that experience of kind of stepping into the void, uh, maybe it's maybe it's coming in handy right now. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you for sharing this book. I I really enjoyed reading it. And as I've already said, it's it's not in my subfield and I found it 
clear, accessible. I felt that you gave me a background on the literature without drowning me. And I understood why what you were arguing was both consistent with and complementary to what had come before. I'm wondering what your new project, what are you working on now? Sure. So uh, at the end of this project, so right when I was wrapping up, there was a kind of new wave of climate plans coming out from all three cities, a kind of updated uh, take on their climate plans. And what all three cities did uh, in these new plans was really shift their focus much more squarely on the intersection between climate action and inequality. Um, And so this is where uh, I, I think there's it's pretty clear this is where the policy uh, momentum is headed, and I think for some for some good reasons. So, um, so that's where a lot of my work is focused on is focused right now is um, how uh, cities can and do make those links between um, justice, inequality, and and climate preparedness, climate response. Um, sort of how they do it, why they do it. If we put it under um, this umbrella perhaps of coalition building, this is kind of what Toronto is doing pretty explicitly is trying to broaden the coalition around, around climate action. Um, Does it really lead to more effective uh, progress on, on climate response or on addressing inequality? Um, So I've been thinking about doing some work on that um, kind of theoretically, um, but then doing um, case studies here locally uh, focused on Detroit, Cleveland, other legacy cities in the Midwest um, where these issues, uh, issues of inequality are really, really pressing, but um, they don't have the same uh, legacy or experience uh, with climate policy. So that's where I've been spending a lot of my time lately. Well, I really look forward look forward to reading it. Um, Syracuse, thank you so much for joining us. The book is Repowering Cities, Governing Climate Change Mitigation in New York City, Los Angeles, and Toronto, published by Cornell University Press 2019. It's available on the Cornell University Press website. You can check it out on Indie to find a bookstore near you. Right now, Labyrinth Bookstores in Princeton is offering free shipping anywhere in the United States and I believe elsewhere. Um, Take advantage of that. Support a nice brick and mortar bookstore that is uh, remains independent and is a beautiful place to shop. Um, thanks again, Sarah, for your time. And yeah, we'll all be watching. Uh, we'll, we'll, oh, actually, you're on Twitter at Sarah Hughes underscore da- T O. Right? Are you from yep. Toronto originally? Is that the T O? No, but I started. Uh, <laughs> I got a Twitter account while I was in Toronto. So. Okay. <laughs> All right. So follow Sarah on Twitter. Follow me on Twitter. Let us know what you think of the show. And um, we'll uh, look forward to having Sarah back when she finishes some of this work on equality as well. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you. What a treat. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.